0: I would say to anyone in the states who's listening if you ever get the opportunity go and check out your trains because you know they're battered and they're old and they're kind of clanking but they're they're great they really are Welcome to
1: Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is a remix of my 2021 conversation with travel writer Manisha Rajesh, whose books specialize in train travel. I actually quote Manisha in a Vagabond's Way chapter called, quote, A train isn't just a vehicle, it's a place. A wonderful aspect of traveling by train, she writes, is the transactional relationship between passengers who feed off of one another, picking up tips, offering advice, guarding each other's belongings, and generating a trust that is unique to railway travel. Over the course of our conversation, Manisha and I talk about why going by train makes for a better travel experience than flying. We talk about the differences between the more efficient trains of Europe versus the more dynamic and social trains of Asia. We talk about how to pass the time on a long train journey like the Trans-Mongolian train across Russia. And we talk about what it's like to travel by train in the United States, which is something I hadn't done since I was a little kid, even as I took extended train rides in other parts of the world. We start by talking about how train travel became her travel riding specialty. Let's listen in. You have written two books about train travel, the most recent of which is called Around the World in 80 Trains, which is literally just that. Um, And I'm curious to know, trains are kind of an old transportation technology, um, and you've written two books about them. What sparked your interest to begin with?
0: Oh, this is actually going to take me back about 10 years now, uh, to January 2010. So that's when I did Around India in 80 Trains. And that came about, um, quite haphazardly, actually. I was working at Time magazine um, a couple of months before I set off. And I was reading an article which was about how India's domestic airlines could connect 80 cities. And I pulled up the map of India to have a look at this. And I sort of followed the lines of where these airlines could go. And I was just amazed by the, the amount of places they could reach. And Even though um, I lived in India for a couple of years when I was about nine, at that point, the airlines could just about cover all the main cities. Um, But in the space of, I mean, literally 20 years, I think it was, it it just rippled out all over the place. And I looked at this map and I thought, wow, I'd love to go and visit all of these cities. And I thought, "Mm, imagine going around India in 80 planes. And then I thought, no, that's that's a horrendous idea because the carbon footprint would be enormous and I'm not a big fan of planes. And then at the same time, looking at this map, I noticed this um, quite incredible, almost like filigree. It was so tiny. And this just, you know, expanded right out into the nooks and crannies of the country, right to the very edges of the coast and up the mountains. And when I looked at the key, I saw it was Indian railways. And literally in a split second, my brain went from around India in 80 planes to around India in 80 trains. Hmm. Um, so it wasn't because I had any great big love of trains or anything like that. I, I don't come from a railroading family. I didn't grow up, you know, behind railway lines or anything like that. Um, I just knew that it would be a really um, smart way of getting literally into the sort of lifeblood of India and coming face to face with people in a way that I, I wouldn't otherwise be able to and so I bought myself a rail pass for 90 days, which quite honestly cost me something like 500, I think it was $540 for three months of wow. travel. Um, and that included my sleeper services and quite a lot of food as well. So the, all in all, the trip was was really cheap. And so I I set off and, and initially the trains were just the kind of the method by which I was going to travel around India um, and meet people and find my stories. And by the end of that, it ended up being four months. Um, I realized that the trains had actually become the protagonist of my story. The trains had come to the forefront and and I had completely fallen in love with them. And I realized that railways just allow you to delve into the heart of a country in a way that no other form of transport will allow you to. And so that just became, it, it ended up becoming a part of me. And so whenever I traveled after that, I used to find myself kind of vying towards railways rather than any other form of transport. And I would always try and use trains instead of planes if I could. And so that's how the second book came about. It had been about five years from when the first one had been released. And I started thinking, I'd love to go and do another trip like this again. Uh, But I wasn't sure where I could not emulate what I did in India, but at least do something along those lines. And I soon realized that language was actually going to be my biggest hindrance. Uh, I'd have loved to have gone to China and done what I did in India, but I just couldn't speak to people in the same way. And it would have just, it would have really muted my journey. So I realized anything I could do was go around the world. Um, and so it was, it was quite a, a big trip to plan. But um, I'm really glad that I did it, especially given our current situation and the sort of mm. lack of travel.
1: Yeah. Um, on your first trip, as I understand it, you went alone, uh, this time you brought uh, the man who's now your husband. Uh, how did ch- traveling with a companion change the experience
0: from one to another? So the first book in India, I, I did actually set off with a photographer companion. I had a, it was a Norwegian friend of a friend who came along to do some of the journey. Uh, we didn't do all of it together. We did, we did little bits here and there just to have some nice photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and even traveling in India, I could really feel the difference between when he was there and when he wasn't, because I did sort of six, seven weeks on my own. And the way in which people interacted with me was totally different when we were on our own. Um, In some strange ways, people would leave us alone because we just looked like a contained pair and we were obviously getting on doing our own thing and people don't often want to interrupt on that. But equally, because he was white and he was six foot and stuck out like a sore thumb, people immediately wanted to come and talk to us. So it was it was a bit of both. Um, And when I was on my own, I found people would invariably come and talk to me and ask what I was doing, where I'd come from, where was my husband, how come my dad had let me travel by myself, um, was I married, um, what on earth was I doing alone, And but for the most part it was curiosity, I think. They, they were just really intrigued by the fact that there was a young Indian woman with a backpack uh, and a camera and apparently no companion around, um, just traveling around with this haphazard Idea, just I think they just found it so amusing more than anything. Uh, But for the most part, people were lovely. They were really welcoming, they were really helpful, they were very sweet as well. They would often you know, scratch off the list of hotels and restaurants I'd got and rewrite their own for me, hmm. uh, and then they'd also give me phone numbers of cousins that they had in the towns that I was heading to, and would say, you know, give them a call when you get there, and they'll help you. And they always would; they would always turn up, and they would reply, and they would pick me up, and they would drop me off in places. And it was quite incredible. There was there was so much of the kindness of strangers. Um, but sorry, back to a question about this book. Uh, yes, it was different uh, traveling with. Uh, who's now my husband, was, was a brilliant experience because um, we didn't always travel together. We were obviously on the trains together, but when we would arrive in cities, I would usually go off and do my own thing. And then he and I would meet at the end of the day back at the hotel and go for dinner. And That way we, we would have a lot to chat about. And it was interesting to see as well what we each discovered in the city on our own. Um, he would find something completely random that I may not have come across and we'd share ideas on what to do the next day and he'd meet people that I hadn't met and he could strike up conversations with people and then I would sort of join them and he'd make inroads and would get information out of people in a way that I couldn't and so it was um it was actually a really nice dynamic we had and and also you know just in the in the broad scheme of things it's really lovely to have somebody to travel with and share those experiences with because I think if he'd stayed back for seven months while I went off, I would have probably spent quite a lot of time on FaceTime and, Mm. you know, wishing there was somebody there to remember these incredible moments with and, you know, standing in the Kremlin, looking at St. Basil's Cathedral at night time and that sort of thing, when you just want to turn to someone and say, isn't this amazing? And and then you talk about it when you're back home. And, you know, over the last four or five years since we've been back, because it was 2015 when we travelled, Uh, We've had some really lovely moments where we would just pass. I remember we passed a poster of, uh, I think it was uh, one of the Tori shrines in Kyoto um, on a wall in Soho. And my husband said, isn't that? the?" the, And I said, I was just about to say it. It's the Tori shrine. And, And it's just little things like that, where we always have that point of reference that we did these travels together and we always have something to talk about.
1: That's great, yeah. Um, I I wonder if it would have been any different, had there been a different mode of transportation, you you know, you were talking about India and um, I took a train from Mumbai to Calcutta once and it was very memorable, but all the buses in India I took are memorable for a different reason. Um, They're they're very social, (laughs) but some of those up in the Himalayas were just, were terrifying, you know, I I remember being on roads and seeing similar buses down crashed
0: in the canyon, so. Um, absolutely. In fact, that was one of the reasons why I I opted for the trains because I absolutely hate driving in India for, for the very reasons that you pointed out, and I can't stand buses. And you know, you, you like you said, you'll be driving up a mountainside, and you'll just see them nose down with everyone standing with their luggage to the side. Uh, and so I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't mad keen on the idea of doing that. Um, but but like you you were just saying when you when you travel together, I think trains are a really well, it was it was an interesting period because, you, I mean, you're literally six foot away from the next person for the best part of seven months. And, you know, you're traveling with somebody literally above you, just next to you. And you even you're off a train. It, sorry, when you're on a train for about 56 hours, you've just got that same person in your compartment and you can't really escape each other. Um I guess the nice part is that you can sort of go down to dining cars and you can move around and trains in a way that you can't on planes but but there is there is something very specific about train travel that means your relationships certainly develop in a certain way
1: well i I grew up with sort of a romantic idea of train travel, especially in Europe. the idea of the of the Uriel paths when I was a teenager in the eighties seemed mm. so appealing but Um, Actually, the Europe portion of your book is quite small.
0: This is one of the things that people um, have often mentioned, that the first chapter is quite condensed. And, And like you said, I had a URL pass, which could have taken me to 28 different countries in 28 days. And obviously, that was just not possible. I had, you know, there was no way I could just get around all those places. And I had to pick and choose specific bits that I wanted to... Go through properly and spend a decent amount of time in to get enough stories. But I just found that nothing happened on board the trains. They they were punctual. They were efficient. They were clean. They were they were fast. Um, but they were really quiet they were really Uh bland there were no stories and I got on board and within two hours we arrived in the destination and and that's the other thing there are very very few overnight services left in Europe now because of the sort of onset of high-speed bullet trains that there aren't these long drawn-out romantic journeys where you you know get on board in Paris and then tomorrow morning you arrive in Italy you can't do that anymore and in, in fact I think when we traveled there were Probably about five or six overnight journeys left in Austria and Germany. Uh, I know some of them have come back now in the last year or so, but there was just there was just not much to really say. And people would get on board and they would pull out their phones, their laptops. They would start you know snoozing or they just have something to eat or read, and there was no conversation. And that's what you know. My India book was absolutely rammed, full of conversations with all kinds of people and that's what kept my narrative going so with the first chapter i found that i had to just condense down that period really because there there wasn't a huge amount to say and most of the activity was was off the rails it was when we'd arrived at the cities or it was in restaurants or it was in bars or you know in in laundromats (laughs) um so so that's why the the beginning bit was was quite squashed but as soon as I moved on to the Trans-Mongolian train and headed off into Russia, it all very much picked up pace, and there was a lot to say.
1: For sure. You know, I, I took the Trans-Mongolian in the other direction about 20 ah, years right. ago. Um, wow. So that was that was fun to read. Um, and so how did that transform? Suddenly you're on this train ride, which is has got to be the longest train ride in the world. It just keeps going and going and going. And it's hard to believe you're still in the same country. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, so uh, the Trans-Siberian is actually the one that goes from Moscow to Vladivostok, which I don't know if that was the one that you took. Um, But I took the Trans-Mongolian route, which uh, breaks off halfway through. So you go through Ulaanbaatar and Mongolia, and then it dips down and goes through China and ends up in Beijing. And that was the one we decided was the best option, because from there we could then have... A lot more options for onward travel. So we, from Beijing, we went all the way down south to China to Nanning, across the border into uh, Vietnam, and then carried on all the way down Vietnam and across uh, down to Southeast Asia. Uh, so, gosh, this journey—it was. I think the first leg, we boarded at Monday morning at around eight o'clock in Moscow, and Friday morning at about five a.m. I think we were still in siberia but we had arrived in okutsk so it was four nights uh the first leg and i think i think most people split up the journey because it's just way too much to be doing nine straight days Uh, and in fact a lot of people after monday when we boarded had hopped off already by you know tuesday wednesday they'd got off in ekaterinburg and different cities to have a nose around and then hop back on but because of our timetable and the connecting trains and visas we had, we didn't have that luxury. So yeah, we hopped off in Kutsk. We went uh, on an absolutely magnificent steam train around Lake Baikal, called the Circumbaikal Railway. And then we spent, I think, maybe two and a half days there and then hopped back on, uh, carried on to Mongolia, spent three or four days there and then got back on and finished in Beijing. And I think in total, it was about 12 days maybe for the whole journey but I think that journey for me um really had the most that was like a kind of it was like traveling in a hinge in the earth I think I described it in the book because it really was that connecting between east and and, and west for me where you can actually see the changes between you know both sides where you just spent at least two days crossing through this incredible part of the world where there's there's just nothing but trees and trees and trees and then these lakes appear and then they disappear and the seas appear and then the mountains rise and then they recede and and you even see in people's faces the way their faces are very slowly, gradually changing from, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes to dark hair and blue eyes, then dark hair and dark eyes. And suddenly you can see why people look the way they do um, in gradations across the world. And I think that's what I love most about train travel is that, you know, if you fly, you'd literally have taken off from Moscow and land in Beijing, and you could see the food is so distinct in on one side and the people are so distinct on another. But when you're on the train, you see that merging, you see the melting point where it all merges into one at some stage and then gradually sort of peters off into something else. Um, and that's why I think that train journey particularly was a really special one.
1: Obviously, it was more interactive than these more efficient European trains. Did yes. you have any strategies for, for meeting people and talking to
0: people? No, none. It was a, a, The only thing we did was download an app which had a Russian translate on it. And that was the key thing that we did, which helped us it sort of chat to people in our compartments. But nobody spoke English at all and I was a little bit taken aback because I expected some people to and I knew that You know, Trans Mongolian's quite a reputable service that loads and loads and loads of English people take or English speaking people. But what I didn't know was that we'd been booked onto the domestic service that most Russian people take. Uh, And the Rossiya is actually the sort of fancier one that most tourists hop on. uh, But we weren't on that. And that was absolutely fine by me because I quite enjoyed traveling the way that regular Russians travel and didn't want to be in these plush sleeper seats with. uh, you know, flat screen TVs and all the amenities. And it it was a lot more fun to watch people travel the way that they do every day. But we were really lucky. We had a very sweet lawyer who was in the compartment next to us and he was bilingual. And he was incredible because he'd never been taught English. He just taught himself huh. by watching American TV shows. So he had a quite strong American accent, uh, but he was fluent, absolutely fluent. And he popped into our compartment when we were about two or three hours into the journey and just said, have you got a problem? Uh, and I was quite tense and said, no, no, no problem at all. And he said, because I see you trying to buy something and I think you have a problem. And I realized it was just a loss in translation. He was asking if we needed help. Mm. Uh, and he he was absolutely lovely. He explained to our companion that we were traveling, that I was writing a book, that we were just, um, you know, a couple heading around the world for six or seven months. Um, and of course, all their demeanors immediately changed when when they realized what we were doing, because they, they weren't used to seeing uh, tourists or any foreigners at all on board and they were a little bit standoffish. But within, you know, a couple of hours and after about four or five beers, uh, they were lovely. They were so friendly and so sweet. And they all communicated with us through him. But even after he'd got off the next day, we still had a couple of days on board. Uh, you know, the staff were, were, were lovely. They we, None of us spoke the same languages, but they still managed to interact with us by bringing us books that people had left on board. They would swap stamps and coins and all sorts of bits and pieces with us. And people would come and just, put their food on our table and tell us to try it and it it didn't really matter that we didn't have the same literal language because you still have a sort of general language of understanding and body language and the warmth of communication that would just get us where we needed to be
1: I I love those sorts of interactions um yeah when you don't share a language and you're just your problem solving is part of the communication process absolutely um you also um how did you pass the time? I mean this is you can 't just um hang out with people for days at a time. How did you make the miles of of birch trees uh, go faster?
0: <laughs> there was a lot of just uh, it was so so first of all, we were traveling in June, which was so excruciatingly hot, and that 's not something I had considered about Siberia. And I remember looking at the thermometer that was outside our compartment and it was sort of hovering around 39 degrees almost every day. And we were unlucky enough to have broken air conditioning. So we we had the window wedged open a bit and this hot air was just steaming in through the the cracks and a lot of pollen and from the birch trees. But there was a lot of um, reading, certainly a lot of reading. I, I very ambitiously downloaded War and Peace and oh, young Stalin and all kinds of Soviet books onto my Kindle. And Mm. I think I barely made it through the first chapter of War and Peace before sort of nodding off in the heat. But, oh, so many things, just lots of card games, um, just sitting and watching people as well, just sitting in the dining car and watching people interact with each other and playing drinking games and, you know, couples just having little sessions of bickering and whatnot. But we, we also stopped at almost, I think it was around 80 different stations between Moscow and Okhotsk. And the, you could hop off and stretch your legs. So there was a lot of, you know, rummaging around in stalls and haggling with babushkas and buying bits of cheese and slabs of cake and playing cards and things. So we we managed to keep ourselves fairly occupied. And you know, just strolling around and watching from the windows, because, like I said, it was scenery that I'd, I'd never come across before. And even though you know there were hours and hours of just birch trees without any leaves on, and a few lakes, there were still some spectacular moments where you would just find yourself standing at the window in awe for about twenty minutes. And it was it was a lovely way to to, to mix up the time.
1: You write about watching streaming the game Game of Thrones. On the journey. <laughs> did, did you watch Game of Thrones on the Trans Mongolian, or was that other just other parts of the journey?
0: No, we did. We actually watched it on the Trans Mongolian. So, uh, from the section, I think it was between between Ulaanbaatar and Beijing, that was the key point where we went through about six episodes or seven episodes back to back. Because I don't know if, if you did that sector or you just did the Trans Siberian, but there's a point where you have to wait. I think it's for about six hours where it's the China-Mongolia border because the the track gauge is different crossing from one to the other. It's an old kind of war thing where they made sure that the tracks didn't tally up to stop invasion. And Mongolia's tracks are ever so slightly slimmer. So you have to wait on the border and the train is literally jacked up uh, in a warehouse um, to a good kind of probably about seven or eight meters high. You don't even feel that they're doing it till you suddenly look out the window and see that you're way off the floor and you can see all these hard hats bobbing around because they, they literally remove the whole chassis from underneath and put a whole new one underneath. And it takes about five hours and there's a lot of jolting and shunting And so for that period, we just sat in our compartments because you can't get down, you can't use the toilet, you can't eat, you can't do anything for five hours and it's pretty torturous. And we'd been forewarned about this. So we downloaded all these episodes and just kept ourselves busy in there. I mean, along with other people, we did a lot of hanging out the window, making videos, waving at another train across from us that was also jacked up with all the passengers in. Um, And I think there were a few drinking games going on in the compartment next door to us But apart from that, yeah, it was a a good point by which we could um, catch up on the series.
1: Yeah, that was a funny detail to read because 20 years ago, and I did take the Trans-Mongolian, but starting in Beijing and going through, stopping at Lombator and and Irkutsk. But um, it was interesting to read your story because you were checking the blue dot on Google Maps and you were researching using travel blogs, which didn't really exist in 1999 when I did the train. Um, and it, it occurred to me that the, that this the travel writing has changed. That That's simply how we travel now. We we don't mm. um, just allude to guidebooks or the Dostoevsky, but we also have the option of watching Game of Thrones or seeing our blue dot on the Google map.
0: That's something that um, a couple of people brought up, uh, not in a negative way by any means, but when I was writing the book uh, and even when I was doing the travels, I was quite conscious of this because when I'd done my India trip, I think Twitter had sort of just about taken off and I barely tweeted anything. I think I had an account, but I certainly couldn't log on to it and just ask people questions in a way that I did on this journey. I mean, I remember arriving in Siem Reap and it was quite late in the evening and I just tweeted saying, can anyone recommend a really great restaurant in Siem Reap for just very typical traditional food. And within about 10 minutes, uh, a woman replied from the Ritz-Carlton in Siem Reap and she said, hi there, I'm the restaurant manager and I'm from London and I've lived here for the last 15 years. You should go to Chanry Tree or you should go to this one, or you should go to this one. And if you've got time this evening, pop in for a drink because I finished my shift at whatever time. And within, that was it, within 20 minutes, our evening was sorted and we went to meet her. And she gave us a long list of things to do in the town that I've, probably wouldn't have found because even in a guidebook by that point it might have been out of date or it might have closed down or things might have moved on and uh, I found it a lot more fun actually to do it this way because you instantly have access to local people or just expert opinion um, and, and even like you said, being able to follow the the blue map on my iPhone was sorry the blue dot on my iPhone was was another experience for me to to know all the time exactly where I was, especially on a train like the Trans-Siberian, where for five days you could be absolutely anywhere and you have no idea until you arrive at a station. But to be really conscious of you know a lake is coming up and you think I wonder what that's called, and then you can just look at your phone and say Oh, well, it's well, it's this one." And to know instantly what, what's what's going on, and to be able to download apps to talk to people, translation apps, or to look things up uh, from one minute to the next. And so, when I came to write the book, I wrote in all of this because it would be completely disingenuous to pretend that that's not how we travel now. Because because we do, we all do. We we use Instagram, we we hashtag stuff, we we pinpoint things, um, and we're all connected with people in a way that we really weren't before. And I think it would be, I think just for the sake of wanting to travel in an old way with maps and compasses and guidebooks is is absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I didn't want to pretend that we don't have all these resources at our fingertips. And I wanted to see how my travels would change uh, for good or for bad by by using all of these things that we had available.
1: Was it ever for bad? Was there ever a point at which you thought maybe your technology was getting in the way of certain kinds of experiences?
0: No, I don't don't think it ever did. But I think when I did feel it was when it wasn't available. When we traveled into North Korea, I immediately had no access to email or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or anything. In fact, I didn't have access to my phone at all. It was just completely cut off. There was no network. And so for 10 days, my phone was used as nothing more than a camera and that felt quite strange and I suddenly realized how used we've become to just tapping on an icon and saying oh this is where I am hey everybody have a look and I think because of that I became more aware of what I was looking at and it became more about what I wanted to see and it wasn't a case of thinking this would make a great Instagram post or this would make a great Twitter post and it made me so much more conscious of what we actually look for when we travel. And are we looking at these things through the eyes of what our audiences want to see, what we think our audience wants to see, when you know you don't have one. And for 10 days, it was just about me and what I wanted to see and the people I wanted to talk to and collecting the photographs that were of interest to me at that point. And it felt a bit more like the old days of travel where you're literally just note-taking and it's just you're just there in that moment. And there's nothing else around you or distracting you but the moment of where you are, who you're with, what it smells like, what food you're eating, and and documenting all of that. Um, and again, in China, I felt it when, as soon as we arrived, I tried to get onto WhatsApp to try and contact a friend who was supposed to meet us in the lobby of our hotel. Uh, and, of course, I couldn't use it, and I had to download WeChat and use WeChat instead, and I couldn't access my emails and the VPN wasn't working. And I just suddenly felt... Um, cut off and realized how reliant we are on all this technology and how resourceful we have to be when we don't have it. And and in some ways, it was so much more fun to not have, uh, you know, the constraints put on you, knowing that you've got to meet someone at a certain time and you can just WhatsApp them and say, oh, I'm going to be a bit late when, when you couldn't do that. And you knew you had to meet someone at four o'clock and there was no way of telling them I can't be there. Uh, You just had to be there on time, picking up a landline and calling someone and saying, I'm going to be there. And then you can't do anything in between. I think it makes you a lot more conscious of other people's time as well. And I think just behaving a bit better.
1: It feels like this could almost be a, a, a travel book for some future generation, like around the yeah. world without a smartphone, right? Without a
0: smartphone, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that that helps them see uh, a, a kind of time travel of what it was like to travel before we had all these um... yeah,
0: all these gadgets and yeah, yeah gizmos.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. We well, you talk about how um, things slowly changed culturally um, as you went from west to east. Mm. Um, as you left the Trans Mongolian train and you took a series of trains through China and then later Southeast Asia, how was that experience different? Um, you know, Asian cultures are sort of known to be a little bit more communal. Does that translate into the train experience?
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, in fact, comparing the first month that we'd had in Europe and then what it was like for the next two or three months was, I mean, the dis- distinction is so stark that they're just amazing Asian trains. I mean, I think I described it in the book as, you know, Asians just aren't able to sort of differentiate between a kitchen and a living room and a train and everything just becomes one. And I love that about Southeast Asian trains and Asian trains in general, I think. Um, It's so communal. It's everybody is just so at ease and you share food and you share stories and you, there's no sense of personal space. Everybody invades everybody else's and you, you don't board one of those trains and expect to be left alone alone. But I think that's that's what I love about them. I love the fact that people are very much involved in each other's business you can hear everyone else's conversation it's not considered rude if you just join that conversation and and the nice bit is you can just wander off and leave that conversation whenever you want to um, people swap food people advise each other they you trust people implicitly in a in a way that I just don't think you do anywhere else I mean when you're traveling you sort of throw caution to the wind anyway and you do things that you just wouldn't necessarily do at home like riding around on the back of a moped with no helmet and with no flip-flops on and that sort of thing which you definitely wouldn't do at home um and for some reason you just do these things when you travel you just you just have a, a sort of inherent trust and I used to often just leave my bags with families if I just needed to nip off to a dining car or something and it never occurred to me that they would do anything with it and people used to say to me when I got back home but oh what did you do when you needed to go did you just did you chain your things did you padlock your bags and I never did I just didn't because people just treated you like family and I never ever had anything stolen and no one ever wandered off with our things and maybe we were just really lucky but I just always felt that there was just that sense of sort of train traveler trust that it's almost like a kind of understood language that you, you look after my things. and then when I need to go, I look after your things and, and we'll look after each other for the duration of this journey.
1: When you were talking about the sharing of food that goes on those trains, my mouth sort of watered because I've been on Asian (laughs) trains before. Um, and I know this is a leading question, but did you find that the food was kind of better on Asian trains?
0: Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I really did. In fact, just thinking now to what you're talking about, the I think my favorite train for the food alone was um, a train through Malaysia where I think we bought it in, yes, it was from Bangkok down to Kuala Lumpur. And the dining car on board that train still sticks in my mind now. I can still picture this laminated menu, which had, um, it was for a hundred baht, which was probably about, I don't know, $1.50 at that time. And you got four courses of, oh my gosh, deep fried fish, um, fried rice pineapple chunks, um, sea bass steamed in chili and tamarind. And we had chicken congee for breakfast in the morning for about 80 baht and freshly squeezed orange juice. And it was just incredible. And I remember being in that dining car with the, the windows were all pushed down and everyone was gathered in random tables. And no one knew anyone, but everybody sat together. They just got chatting across their bowls of food. And it's again, it was a very communal experience where it didn't matter who you were sitting with, it didn't matter. Even if you're on your own, um, it was odd because I remember being on European trains by myself and feeling really isolated and thinking that people were looking at me because I was alone and dining alone. But for some reason in these trains where you're sitting by yourself, no, it doesn't matter. You don't feel it because you, you already feel like you're part of one big family anyway. And I think the variety of cooking was just so different over there because they cook so much on board. And I think that's probably because there are so many more overnight journeys, whereas, like I would said before, in Europe, there are so few that you're lucky if you just, you know, have a few toasted panini and some bags of crisps and chocolate. But on these Asian trains, because you can be on there for up to sort of 40, 50 hours They've got phenomenal dining cars with these you know, hissing walks and you could smell you know, the, the god, I'm just my mouth watering now, just thinking about this Chinese train that had the most spectacular uh, noodles and deep fried beef that we'd had and it's it's great fun. It's it's enormous fun and I couldn't read the menu most of the time, but they would they would realize that and they would just bring you something that they knew you'd, you'd be happy enough eating. And, and I love that. I just love that kind of serendipitous way of traveling.
1: I love that. Um, and when I think of Asian trains, I think of taking trains in South Korea where I lived for a while, but I can't imagine that the food and social atmosphere was the same in North Korea. Um, what was it like to take a train <laughs> for 10 days through North Korea?
0: So I was actually just about to ask you about South Korea because I've never travelled there, um, and it's it's one of those pins in my map that's that's waiting to be visited. Um, oh, North Korea! So we were actually on a chartered train, so we weren't allowed to travel with general public. Even though we certainly went through the same train stations and our train parked up against theirs, and we could have a look inside, we weren't allowed to travel with people. Um, but then again, no one speaks English, so we would never have been able to interact with them and share stories or chat in the same way. But um, North Korea was a ten-day journey. It was it was a specific train um, expedition that was put on by a British company because I, di- I mean I didn't even know before I went that you can travel in and out of North Korea quite easily as a tourist. And this company that I went with, that I think there are three based in Beijing that do tours up to a 100 a year. Um, and this one happened to be a train tour, which is why I decided to go on it. And it took us out of Pyongyang and right down to the south of the country and then back up the, the east around the coast and then back to Pyongyang. Um, and yeah, it was a very unnerving is probably the word, that I would use because I think with any other country I've ever traveled to, I've always been able to read books about it in advance and I can read books while I'm there. And if I see something during the day, I can ask someone, what is this? What am I looking at? Why is this like this? Why does, what is this food? You know, when did this come from? But while you're there, you can't do that. You aren't allowed to take books into the country. You can't take in anything. I mean, you could take in something that was propaganda written about the Kims, but it's very unlikely that you would want to do that i mean you can certainly buy myriad books about the kims while you're there but you're not allowed to take in any kind of book that's not about them um you can't chat to anybody that you just bump into on the street you are only really allowed to ask the guides polite questions nothing to do with politics because it's incredibly awkward for them um and you don't want to get them in trouble with the other guides if they're overheard saying something they shouldn't say. Uh, but it, also, you don't you don't know how much they know. Some of them may know a lot about what's happening. Some of them may know nothing, which is unlikely. But because their media is so controlled and they only have a kind of intranet system, they don't have access to the kind of material that we do. Um, some of our guides were actually reading the BBC news off <laughs> um, our American guide's phone. So. They obviously do pass information around each other, but the the sort of exterior is there that it's maintained, and you don't break it, and you don't ask people things. So it was a it was almost suffocating towards the, end, towards the end of the trip because your instinct as a journalist and a travel writer is to want to say what what am I looking at and why is this like this and when did this shop come up and why are they selling this bizarre furniture and who on earth comes here? But you just can't find out the reasons behind any of this and it becomes very frustrating when you're constantly walking around in almost a a bubble of confusion because layered upon that is the fact that they are trying to offer you a vision of everything being wonderful and we are you know so powerful we've got lots of food we're very prosperous and you know that that's not the case but you're always trying to look in between the lines and read what's going on. And it was just a very complex experience because you always wonder if you're projecting and you wonder how much you're being taken in. And so it was a really interesting process for me to to look at it, not just as a journalist, but just as a sort of everyday traveller and and wonder w- what it is that you're seeing and what, what will be there in a few years' time. Because I think with a lot of countries, you... You know that they're undergoing changes and you can predict how they might be in about 10 or 15 years' time. But this is one of the only places I went to where I genuinely came away with no idea about where that country will go, what will happen to its people, um, and when the regime might be brought down, because it's it seems very watertight. And I just, I had no, I had absolutely no kind of foresight as to what what will happen. And that was a very strange feeling to have as a journalist.
1: Was it ever enjoyable? Is it the kind of trip you would recommend, or was it just sort of a curiosity? journey
0: no no for me it actually I I found it very enjoyable and uh, so did the other people on our trip and that was that was the other thing I was curious about because I was the only journalist on our trip and I wasn't even supposed to be there as a journalist and so the 14 other people who had just signed up to the trip had no idea what I did they just thought I worked in marketing or something and they were all just tourists they I mean (laughs) there was a couple on honeymoon uh, which I loved and there was um, I think a Businessman from Canada there's a few people from England a couple of Americans one was a veteran who'd come across to just sort of set um set his own feelings to write he just said I you know have really strong feelings about the Korean War and I just wanted to come back and reassess my own relationship with it because he had a friend who'd been there who'd been taken prisoner and he promised to go back for him and take photos there and each person had their own reason for wanting to go and I think it was definitely a combination of curiosity and some people wanted to go back with some great dinner party stories and for me it was never really about that I was just very very curious as a layperson as to what this country was really like because you know we all read different stories about it but I wanted to know how much of that really felt like that when we went there. And and often it didn't. I mean, it really didn't. The guides were very sweet. They're very friendly. They were very fun to chat to. They do these trips all the time. They know what they're up against with travellers wanting to ask them all sorts of things. Um, but it's also a really beautiful country. And as soon as we come out of Pyongyang and gone into the countryside, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, I was really taken aback by how naturally beautiful it was. And I don't know why I found that surprising, because most Asian countries are really stunning and the countryside is is glorious and this was no different. Um, in fact almost more beautiful in some of the cities because they have so few factories that there's no pollution and the sky's always bright blue um, you could see so much of the city the you know the orchards and farmland and just gorgeous, absolutely beautiful place and you know rivers and rapids and you can you can even go um skiing up in Mount, uh, I think it's Mount Kilmgang and Mount Mohang. And it's a beautiful place. It's really gorgeous and also really, you know, undisturbed, I guess. And just, but, but also incredible to walk around and see posters of sickles and scythes and propaganda that's still you know believed and watched and lived and it was yes it was it it, it was a really fascinating place to be and and I did enjoy it I did enjoy being somewhere where it was up to me to take what I felt from it and no one else was there to try and tell me something different and I I felt I I genuinely felt quite honoured to be able to go there while I was, well, you know, while the country's still open and while it's still accepted people and and to feel a little bit of history, to feel like you're a bit of, you know, you're watching history unravel. Uh, and there are a few, but there's almost nowhere in the world that's still like that. So, Yes, I I absolutely would recommend if you're the kind of person who is curious and and not just for the sake of going and, you know, performing various antics that are going to get you arrested. You have to be respectful when you go. And I think if you do take issue with the way they do things and the human rights abuses, you have to really question yourself before you go and Mm. ask if you ask yourself if you're willing to abide by what they expect, because you can't go if you don't want to do that. And I think you do have to be respectful of that and say, if I'm not going to be okay with this, then I'm just not going to go. Um, but I would absolutely recommend it to anyone who really does want to go somewhere different and experience something that you will never see huh. <laughs> anywhere else in the world, I think.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to hear about that time warp aspect of North Korea. And mm-hmm just because I think, you know, as you indicated, travel can sort of be an indicator of where things are going um, mm-hmm. to sort of push your received expectations against how things really are in the country. And one, yeah. one place that you went um, is North America, where, where I'm from. And it's funny that I've taken trains across India and Russia and Morocco and Egypt, but I think it's been since I was seven years old, since I took a train across the United States. And so this might be the the most educational part of the interview. Um, What was it like to uh, to take trains across Canada and the United States?
0: It's really funny. I thought you might ask me about that. In fact, I think every American interviewer I've spoken to has said the same, that And actually, at the beginning of my chapter, I I said um, almost every American person I spoke to said, we don't take trains. Like, we just don't do that in our country. And by the end of the chapter, I realized how wrong... Uh, that was because there are loads and loads of people on your trains and Mm. they are some of the most fascinating people I have ever come across and some of the loveliest people I've ever met. Um, You know, there were people on board Amtrak for a variety of different reasons. Um, And I, I bought an Amtrak pass, which I think it cost me $600 for a month. And that included, it was 12 legs. So if I say, took the Sunset Limited from New Orleans to LA, if I hopped off in between Arizona or something, that would have been one leg. So I unfortunately had to stay on for the whole journey. I would have loved to break them up, but I had to stay on so that I could actually make use of my pass properly. Um, But I traveled in normal chair car. I didn't travel in a roomette or anything like that because they're kind of extortionately expensive as well. I mean, given the cost of my pass, the one night in a roomette, I think, was $500 from L.A. to Chicago on the, I think it's the Southwest Chief. Um, but the train journeys themselves were just so full of life and the people were brilliant. They, they made the whole journey worth it. And the place where you actually really feel that is in the dining car again. It's that sort of communal hub because when you have a dinner slot, they come and give you a ticket. And then when it's time for your dinner, they ring a bell. And you go up and you line up. And it's great. They seat you at a table for four. So the two of us would be seated on one side. And then they would just call anybody to come and sit opposite you. And that's it. You have to sit with them for your for your dinner. So you've got about an hour across from people you have never met, and you will probably not talk to again. But you are literally brought face to face with people that you would never ever have had a conversation with in your life. And I absolutely loved that about the trip. And, you know, one morning we had uh, pancakes and maple syrup and turkey rashes with a girl who had fled her home from Staten Island. She'd gone to live in Houston because she just decided she hated her life. She hated her school friends and she wanted a break. And she went to Houston and then she was on her way to Joshua Tree to go and meet some friends because she was escaping a boyfriend. So she was sitting opposite us with a dad who was on his way to his estranged daughter's wedding in California. Um, And they struck up quite an interesting friendship with one another. And we later passed her crying on him about her boyfriend. Um, And then. A couple of days later, we were sitting opposite a German Baptist brethren couple from Ohio who were wearing braces and, you know, traditional outfits with bonnets. And he was so sweet, the gentleman, when he said, "Um, we like being on these trains because we get to meet people different from ourselves. And I remember thinking, yeah, likewise. Um, And it it was just a wonderful experience to be able to chat to people that, like I said, we would never, ever cross paths with in our lives normally and to hear their stories and I got to chat to a very sweet couple in their late 80s called Benny and Louise a a black couple who were sitting in the dining car and told us that when they were kids they could never have imagined ever being able to sit in that dining car because their memories were being shunted to the back of the train when they were children as soon as white people got on board they were then moved away and hidden And she said, this is not something that we ever thought we'd be able to do. And it astounded me that that could still have happened in our lifetime. And these are the kind of stories that I picked up on board. Um, But aside from just the personal interactions, the Amtrak panoramic cars have got some of the most spectacular views of the country. And for a lot of the time, I used to just sit upstairs in the dome car. Um, You know, there are people sitting there with guitars. People will be having sing-alongs. Uh, people playing cards and some people just sitting, staring out of the window with a beer. And it was lovely. It was really lovely to see a lot of retirees who'd said that they'd always wanted to do it together. Um, And a lot of them were literally going through, you know, their own states because they said, we've never done this. We've lived here for 40, 50 years. We've never done this. And we always swore that we would. Uh, A lot of students who just found it an easy, cheap way to travel around, um, a couple of people who had their driving licenses taken away from them, who had no other method of transport, Um, but just so many interesting people. And the one thing I understood was it's a sort of common misperception that Americans don't travel. And I remember chatting to a dad um, in Minnesota who said, it's not that we don't travel, it's just that we don't really have the opportunity because we have such little annual leave. And by the time we have managed to get a flight and fly across to Europe and then have a week there and come back, that's like half our annual leave gone. And it was quite humbling for me to understand that and see how naive people are outside the U.S. to that, because we, you know, get 28 to 30 days a year and really take that for granted. And and this dad was very sweet. He said, you know, at least this way, I don't have to drive. The train ticket for four of us costs the same as my tank of petrol there and back. Mm. And I get to have a beer. My kids can just run around and do their own thing. And my wife can relax. And it's it's a really fun weekend for us. And I really appreciated that. And so, yeah, I would say to anyone in the States who's listening, if you ever get the opportunity, go and check out your trains because, you know, they're battered and they're old and they're kind of clanking. But they're they're great. They really are.
1: No, it feels like you've you've sold me. You've made a case for it for sure. <laughs> As we get to the top of the hour, I'm curious to know: Do you have a favorite? And you can include India in this. Um, since <laughs> do you do you have a favorite train or train system in the world?
0: Oh, train system! Uh, oh, train system! Do you know what? For their old clanking, colorful madness, Indian railways have still got a really firm place in my heart. But I have a couple of favorite trains for different reasons. Um, I think the Qinghai Railway to Tibet was probably my favorite for being the most stunning train that I have ever traveled on. Just that the landscape was extraordinary when we pulled up the blackout blind in the morning and there was just this blazing yellow sand of the plateau and screaming blue sky. I've never seen blue like that in my life. And within about four or five hours, it had sort of flattened out into you know molten silver lakes and then... We went up into the mountains, the Kunlun mountains suddenly closed in all around us. They were blue. And then there were suddenly yaks, you know, all hairy and matted and then Tibetan prayer flags and just such a variety. And I've, I've, I've just never seen landscape like that in my life. Um, even coming back uh, the other way, when you see the origins of the Yangtze River, it just looks like silver thread. And the moon looks absolutely enormous up there for some reason. And it, it was just it was just beautiful. It was so beautiful, and I also felt quite sad because I thought when I left, I probably wouldn't get a chance to go back up there again for a very long time, um, because you have to you have to be in China for ten days before you get your Tibetan visa, which means having to have quite a long period in China alone. Um, and then in terms of variety and fun. There was a spectacular train up in British Columbia in Canada called the Skeena, which goes from Vancouver to Prince Rupert. And it takes a day and a half or you stay overnight in Prince George. But, oh, my gosh, you've got the Rocky Mountains, you've got lakes, you've got old First Nations territories, you've got fishing you know, areas, you've got just gorgeous scenery. And then you've got grizzly bears, you've got black bear, you've got elk, you've got moose, you've got caribou bald eagles you've just got everything and it's another one of those trains that has a panoramic car so you just get to sit there and just it's almost like a safari it's it's fantastic uh trying to think of um Ah, trained for the best food in the world, the Mondovi Express in India. It goes from Bombay down to Goa over 12 hours, and it's got the best dining car of the whole Indian railways. And you can smell the food, because the, the hawkers walk up and down every 20 minutes. They've got something different. And so you can't help but just reach out and say, can I just have a look at your basket and see what you've got? And they've got everything from fried chicken legs to spring rolls to biryani to samosas to just, oh, God, so much, so much stuff. And... On Indian trains, I don't know if you've been on any, but they predominantly travel with the doors open, which sounds horrific and really unsafe, but they go so slowly that it's really normal to have the doors wide open and people sit on the steps with a cup of tea. And that for me is just, that just encompasses Indian railways to me, just sitting on those steps with a paperback and a cup of tea and just watching the landscape go by and kids waving at you. And, oh, it just makes me so desperate to travel right now and we can't.
1: Oh, yeah. No, actually, I'm, I'm feeling the same thing. And every single uh, train ride you describe, I, I suddenly want to go on. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know uh, if or when travel again becomes possible, will you always be a train rider? Is this going to be a trilogy? Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I have got, you know, I never wanted to get sort of tight class as a train girl, but I don't mind right now because I love train travel. And I also think that train travel is something that's going to persist and if not grow as a re- as a sort of direct result of what's been happening over the last year. Because I think when it comes to making things COVID safe or COVID secure until we get a vaccination, airlines are struggling and they're going to keep struggling. And trains, on the other hand, are able to adapt a lot faster and a lot better because I was reading recently that, to make it safe for people to travel on trains you can if you space people out trains can justify running at about 40 to 50 percent capacity to put on a service and that way they can actually space people out in a way that keeps them COVID secure whereas in a plane they can't justify the surface if it's only half full so if you travel in a train you can get a whole compartment to yourself overnight and still be okay and so more people are actually looking to travel by train if they're you know, they're really suffering and really want to get out and travel again. And and people are looking to book trains for you know environmental reasons as well. It's, you know, it's still not the perfect way to travel, but it's a hell of a lot better than flying. And I know that slow travel now and being conscious of our carbon emissions and, you know, Greta Thunberg and her flight shaming and flig scram, I think she calls it, um, has certainly pushed people towards looking at train travel a lot more seriously than they did before. So I think I think trains are going to have a bit more of a, a, a resurgence because they were sort of dying out a bit. But I noticed in the last year that night trains have, have started coming back and Europe certainly putting on a lot more than they did before. So, yeah, I have my fingers crossed that trains are going to keep going for a bit longer. And, yeah, maybe I think uh, I have to see what things are like next year, but i would I'd like to do another. well,
1: it sounds like this entire conversation has has sort of made a case for taking trains as as travelers I hope so. <laughs> um any final words to leave people with of you know just the um making the case for trains as a great way to travel?
0: Yeah, definitely make the case for travel. I mean, I've already said that uh, American trains are are fantastic and I would urge everybody just once just put aside four or five days and just take one of the the big routes like the Sunset Limited or the Southwest Chief or the Coast Starlight there you know you have some really gorgeous journeys and it's I think it's quite a typical thing though that you always think one day I'll do it and then you never do get round to it so you know do it while you can because some of those routes might fade out and you'd be kicking yourself that you never got a chance to do it. But, but yeah, definitely look at trains as an option. Look at train travel as an option on your next big journey, and you'll be amazed at what you'll get out of it.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Manisha Rajesh's book Around the World in 80 Trains, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.